Well, not enough is my cross, regardless of what I've accomplished. That is the rocket fuel in life, regardless of what I'm doing. No matter how much I reinvent myself or I know how many industries I tap into, it's not enough. I'm aware of it, but oh my God, is it a cross to carry? This is The Big Jump, a podcast about human reinvention, featuring pro athletes who have leveraged their athletic minds for success beyond sports. I'm your host, David Gardner, a professional basketball player turned CEO of branding firm Color Jar. You probably know Rick Fox is a three-time NBA champion, playing alongside Kobe and Shaq. Or you may know him from the HBO show Oz, or the Spike Lee film He Got Game, just two of his 60-plus Hollywood roles. And then, when mainstream sports was barely paying attention to esports, despite its championships getting more viewers than the Super Bowl, he became a team owner and one of gaming's most prominent figures. After we sat down to record in Beverly Hills prior to the pandemic, he made another big jump and co-founded a game studio called High Def, working to develop a new game for the metaverse. Rick Fox has never been one to be defined by anything he's done before. It's more like the whole world is his playground, a stage maybe, where every opportunity could be his if he chooses to pursue it with everything he's got. You may think of Rick Fox as a success. I think of him as a master of reinvention. I mean, I can't tell you how rare it is to find someone who reinvents themselves once, let alone multiple times. And his first reinvention? Well, that starts with this. I grew up in the Bahamas. I grew up in the islands of the Bahamas, which is off the coast of Miami. I grew up playing sports that wasn't, I would say, wasn't traditional sports to the U.S. I mean, I played fast pitch softball was probably the first one, although I did get stuck in goalie and soccer, which I think I got placed there because I was the tallest and had the longest wingspan. Same experience. Same experience, Yeah, me too. Right? And then um, I swam. Uh, swimming was obviously, you live on an island, you want to you at least know how to, how to swim a little bit. My mom was an Olympic athlete. She was a high jumper in Tokyo Olympics in 1964. So I came from an athletic genetic background, but sports was not something that I really, I would say, I pursued. So even with your mom as an elite Olympic athlete, was there an expectation placed around athletics or a value put on it? Or how did your mom relate to you sort of vis-a-vis sport? Well, my mom, did not have the success she wanted to have at the Olympics. So she carried this kind of cross of disappointment throughout my childhood, falling short of a medal. She'd gotten hurt at the Olympics. And so that was a difficult thing, I think, for her to live with. But I got the critical drive approach as a parent from her, which was, you know, you're not enough yet. You know, you can do it better. But that's not as good as you think. Hmm. Uh, so that was how she was coached by my German godfather who was the trainer to her. Uh, so I got a lot of that kind of critical push and drive just in general in life. As I started to pick up sports and pick up a basketball later on, I thought I was pretty good. Yeah. Could never get past her assessment of whether or not I was good or good enough. But I think that drove me. I think that drove me to really prove her wrong. But then I also had a father who was very much thought I was on par with Michael Jordan. Hmm. So, so, I had, so he had the balance. I had the balance. <laughs> One extreme and to the other extreme. So how did you end up moving to Indiana in high school? You know, uh, everyone has a blind side story in their life. Maybe I use the blind side as an analogy because if you've seen the movie, you know, 
It's a journey of a young man uh, who found his way into sports, and it may have saved his life, but it came at the hands of a lot of very generous people. There was a family in Indiana and a coach, actually, at a college in Winona Lake, Indiana, who happened to be in the Bahamas at a time uh, when I was in school, and my mom was the secretary at the school, and they came down to, I guess you would say, mission the whole entire basketball team. And some of the kids stayed at our house because they needed homes for the basketball players to live at the week they were there. And they put on a little basketball clinic at the high school. Hmm. And that's how I got introduced to the game. So that's when you first started playing. How old were you then? I was 14 at the time. Wow, it's a late it, start. A late start, but it wasn't the first time I'd been introduced to basketball. You know, there was a basketball hoop in my yard, but I didn't really play basketball. This was the first time I kind of was introduced to the game and what it was and how to play it. And I was very athletic. I think it's at 14, I was 6'5", 175 pounds. I could jump. So I could jump up and dunk the basketball without knowing what that meant, which caught the eye of the coach. (laughs) (laughs) Very quickly, you know, Division III NAIA school in Warsaw, Winona Lake called Grace College. You know, instantly then they thought, you know, here's this young man, if we could ever develop him to a place where maybe someday he could play basketball for us. Mm -hmm. This diamond in a rough that we discovered down in the islands. And this was back in the 1980s. So, you know, back then, you know, you really didn't have the kind of scouting going on globally in the game. Mm -hmm. And so this this coach discovered me and invited me to come to camp in the summer. And my mom, to her credit, asked him at dinner if he could basically save her son from the island. Uh, She didn't want me to grow up and uh, go into what was the family business at that time because the family business was not not one that was, I would say— a good path for a young man. So going from the Bahamas to Warsaw, Indiana, I've never been to Warsaw, Indiana, although an odd coincidence, a past guest of the big jump, Mason Plumley grew up yeah, in Warsaw, Indiana. Sure did. Being a fish out of water at a young age is hard enough alone. And then Warsaw is not exactly the diversity capital of the world. How did you feel as, you know, a young man Totally, you know, fish out of water in Indiana under these circumstances. A, grateful, first of all, that there was a coach in Coach Kessler who was willing to extend himself to really fight for me to have this journey of playing high school basketball in hopes of getting a scholarship to go to college. And I think he initially thought that might be at Grace College, but it ended up at the University of North Carolina. And then grateful for the family that took me in. I mean, I really, really, a lot of amazing people in that town who really supported me through that journey. What was difficult was obviously moving from the Bahamas, which is warm weather, you know, to six foot snow drifts and, <laughs> right. and cornfields. And obviously being the, you know, one of the only kids of color in the entire school, you know, this was, it was culture shock. I really, though, remained just singularly focused on trying to make that basketball team and try to fit in. And, you know, I just, I put my head down and I just stayed focused. And now the surrounding Schools and coaches weren't too happy about it because I became too good too fast, and it impacted, obviously, their success. And so that was hard for me to understand at the time. It was hard for me to understand why opposing schools and students were chanting USA, USA. And that's a difficult thing at a, you know, 15 years old to kind of process where, you know, the entire gym of, you know, eight to 10,000 people are mm-hmm. seem to appear to be against you. How did that come to be that you were a huge star your junior year in Indiana, but weren't able to play your senior year? Basically, they counted the two years I went to high school in, in the Bahamas and the two years I went to high school in Indiana as four years. And you're only allowed four years of eligibility in high school sports in Indiana. So they took me to court, 
Wow. They won. I fortunately was still getting a scholarship to go to the University of North Carolina after two years of playing, but I had to sit out my senior year. And so I practiced with the team and I practiced at the college in town there. And I, you know, I played a lot to continue to get better, but I didn't get to play my senior year. That's really tough. I mean, what did you learn from those tough circumstances? What do you think came out of that that has stuck with you? I think the will and the fight that singular focus can have and the discipline of having a destination that you want to reach and get to and having a blueprint. I mean, I had a I had a model in Michael Thompson who came from literally like a bike ride away from my my house in the Bahamas who was kind of my idol. Mm-hmm. He gave me a blueprint of what was possible. Michael Thompson went to high school in Miami, went to college in Minnesota, the Gophers, and then was drafted number one in the NBA. So I had someone to look to. I had someone to look up to. It really was that blueprint that I kind of put you know, out in front as my goal to accomplish the same thing he did. And I just followed that. And it didn't matter who said it was impossible. It didn't matter who was against me. I just knew that I wanted to execute this game plan. And I just stayed focused on that. That's beautiful. And so I understand Coach Roy Williams at UNC kind of discovered you a bit accidentally. He was there scouting an opponent and saw you play. Yeah. And the rest is history, as they say. You had a great college career multiple times on the All-ACC team, played in a Final Four. One thing that struck me about your career was your durability. Um, loathe to try to compare any amount of my basketball career to yours <laughs> because yours is so on another level than mine. But the one thing we have in common is we both set our school record for games played in a career. That's awesome. And not easy. That it's not easy. And so when I think about that, I think about durability and what went into playing and setting the record for most games. There's a suit up and show up that I saw in my own father when it came to his own business. Uh, He was a leader in the community, but he had a discipline about suiting up and showing up every day. And so I saw that in a man who, you know, who raised me that gave me an example of accountability. I saw a lot of people lean on him. I saw a lot of people depend on him. So their team is something that I kind of gravitate to, being on teams, being a part of teams. It's how I feel expressed of how I kind of get my joy in life. So knowing that I was in a team sport, I felt like I had people that were depending on me. There was an accountability. I was being given a scholarship. I was being, you know, offered an opportunity to do things that a lot of kids would really dream of doing, but I was getting that chance. And so the suit up and show up is just something I've always done, uh, regardless of how I felt emotionally or physically. I think it's just something I saw in my dad. When you finally made it to the NBA, coming off of the Final Four in 91, you're drafted to the Boston Celtics. And it was one of the two times in your career, both stops in your career, the Celtics and the Lakers, you played with a legendary dynamic duo. On the first one with Larry Bird and Kevin McHale. Another legendary duo with Kobe and Shaq. What was that like for you? How did you feel coming in as a rookie into that environment with Bird and McHale? Grateful and fortunate. After the Final Four game I played, where I didn't play as well, Brad Arbach was the one that drafted me 24th to the Celtics that year. And he, I got booed on draft night. They may have had others that, you know, the fans were coveting, but Red Arbach had to come to my defense while they were booing me. And wow. so going from North Carolina under Dean Smith, being drafted by the Celtics, the bloodlines of like basketball lore, I couldn't have, maybe to the Lakers, it wouldn't have been another franchise that I could have been drafted by that would have matched what I had experienced in college. So then getting there into, and you're young, that's why you said the big two, 
getting there and being around the big three, which is Kevin with Scott, Parrish. Robert Parrish, yeah, yeah. And Larry Bird. I didn't mean to snub Robert yeah, Parrish. Yeah, no, but that, they were the big three. Right. You know? And so getting there, it was, you know, I was their rookie. They were my veterans. They were the ones that were going to show me how to be a pro. And, and they did, you know, some more verbal than others. Larry Bird was very strict and very serious at all times. And Kevin McHale was very jovial and always joking. And and Robert Parrish was just that kind of like flat line. So I got the high, uh, you know, highs and lows of Kevin and Larry. And I got the calmness of Chief. So I saw levels that I thought really grounded me and gave me a glimpse of, you know, how you could get it done. And, and But I also saw what it meant to be professional as a pro, you know, and, and no greater example than having those three men for myself at that time. Because you're walking into a dynasty. Yeah, I'm walking into excellence at the highest level. In the front office, on the court, the bar was set high right out of the gates. And so starting at that really high bar with a team that's had so much recent success, and then that slowly starts to dwindle, right? Bird retires after your rookie season, McHale the next Every year. year. And then Robert Parrish the year after that, right? Uh, well, he moved on. I think he moved to Chicago. Moved on. Yeah, yes. but uh, Reggie Lewis died, you know, that third year. So it was, it was a tough, yeah, it went from the Celtics, the great Celtics of the 80s to the 90s being really a downward slide for six years. And I ended up being the captain of the, the Celtics for two years in 96 and 97. But man, uh, yeah, it was in the glory years, that's for sure. You know, a very low point, the 96-97 uh, season with the Celtics. We win 15 games. Yeah, that, yeah, that's about as low as you can get. One thing that I've noticed about success is failure and success, I've noticed how closely paired they tend to be in people's stories. Having talked to a lot of people who have made these amazing reinventions, and I always thought that failure and success were opposites. Like they're in opposite directions. And what I've come to learn more is they're often really close to one another and it's just this making this little bump or this little difference and you're in the right direction even and it's on a parallel track. So you go from the low of the low and then suddenly you're now a part of the Lakers, fresh, youthful organization. What did you take from the big three at Boston over with you to being now a veteran yourself or on your way towards being a veteran, being expected to be a leader with a young Kobe and Shaq? Larry, Kevin, and Robert Parrish, but the three of them kind of, I always say, laid a foundation for me on professionalism and the pursuit of championships. And, and always, every year, you know, you're competing to win a championship, not to make the playoffs, not to get an all-star bid or be the scoring leader. Like coming to L.A., I had that as still the most important goal for the team and personally as a part of that team every year. We need to win a championship. That's what we're after. Jerry West recruiting me to come to L.A. and then having— Phil Jackson show up and playing with Shaq and Kobe it was a younger, more inexperienced team, less professional on how they approached things. And what I took from the Celtic experience was I knew what not to do. What were you have any examples? <laughs> you know, when you win 15 games and lose 67, you kind of get a good snapshot of what creates that environment, what mm. causes that environment. And so what I brought to L.A. was a thermometer, an uh, internal vibrating compass for anything that would take us off the course of winning a championship. So I became very sensitive to anyone or anything that exemplified any part of what I experienced in that 15-win season. Right. It was hard for me to accept any behavior from a teammate, any behavior from our group 
that resembled anything like that. So I instantly became, as Phil will tell you in his books, I became the moral compass for the group and the voice for the group when it came to the group's focus and the chase of a championship being the most important thing that we were focused on, not our individual agendas. And being that moral compass, being dubbed by Phil Jackson as the third captain and the go-between between Kobe and Shaq and from the coaching staff to the players, that's high praise from a legend. Yeah. yeah. Moral compass. How does that feel for you thinking about your whole journey getting to that point, winning three championships and getting that kind of praise from a legend like Phil Jackson? It's, you know, the God had a, had a plan for my life when it came to my basketball journey that I could not have scripted that way. I could not have looked back, you know, in retirement and think that I would have accomplished those things and done those things under the men and the mentors and the organizations that I did. It's, I'm blessed, I'm really blessed to have done that. It's amazing, amazing story. After 13 seasons, things came to an end. And one thing I noticed was the durability throughout your MBA career persisted just as it had in your collegiate career, where in seven seasons, you played either all 82 games or all but one. And usually that was coaches forcing you to sit out for rest. Right. Yeah, back in the day, it was taboo to, you know, to take games off. You really were, you know, usually tried, it was a, there was a badge of honor in playing every game. Again, the suiting up and showing up. You know what I always tell, I tell people this, someone pulled out a quote uh, and showed it to me when I was rehabbing my 13th year. And it was from my rookie season when I was drafted and I was interviewed and they asked me what I wanted my NBA career to look like. And I said, I want to play 12 years and win three championships. Wow. And I played 12 years and I won three championships. In that 13th year, I blew out the tendon in my foot. And I thought to myself, I should have said like 20 years and 10 championships or something, right? <laughs> but it's an example. Like, and when that happened and he showed me that quote, mentally in that moment, and I was rehabbing to come back, I knew at that point that I had reached my goal hmm. and I hadn't set it big enough, but I set it for the vision I had for myself in the NBA and it was time to move on. Wow. I was going to ask you when you knew, so it was reading back to that quote. When that was shown to me, yeah. which I wasn't, you know, I wasn't uh, really aware of that or I didn't remember that I had made sure. that quote. I was rehabbing and I was maybe a few months away from coming back. And one of the first games, it was Utah, but I came off the bench for like eight minutes. And then Phil came to me the next day and he said, I need you to start. I was like, Phil, you told me I wasn't going <laughs> to have to play that much until I got my way. I was like, I need you to start. And I played and I guarded uh, Carmelo, a rookie Carmelo Anthony. And I think he must have had, and defense was my thing, but he must have had like 25 points in the first half. And I had like four fouls. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> kind of like, and that game got over and I went in the locker room and I, I looked at the calendar to see how many games were left. And I counted them up and I said, man, I got 32 games left in my career. And I knew it. You just one of those things. Every, every NBA player will tell you there's that moment where you know the game is either passing you by or you've lost. Some people say you lost a step in this case, you know, tendon popping in your foot. For me, it was important for me to rehab and come back, suit up and show up. But when I suited up and showed up, I could see that I was a shell of what I really had been. When you knew, do you remember who you told first? Oh, I didn't tell anybody. You didn't tell anyone? Oh, no, it was, a, it was no weakness to be shown. But in my mind, I knew that I, I had to get to the end of the season. And, and it was interesting. Mentally in that moment, the acceptance of that from that point on through, my body literally just mentally started to fall apart. 
Like I just kept having injury after injury after injury. My brachial plexus in my neck started to flare up. I'd set a pick and I'd get a stinger and my arm would go numb. Ball hit my thumb and it shot up. Like it was just injury after injury. So it was that mind is a powerful thing. And the commitment to blocking out whatever fatigue or whatever physical stress was on my body to actually suit up and show up every day. It was all mind. It's the power of the mind, mind over matter. But as soon as my mind shifted to that's it, I couldn't trick my body into... Into following. Into following. Right. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. How did you feel, you know, then you make it through that season, you wake up the next day and suddenly basketball's gone. It's behind you. What did that do to your sort of sense of identity and kind of who you were in the world? Well, I knew I was really good at basketball. I knew that it was something that I had mastered to a level that provided an opportunity to be an NBA champion, to make a living. But I knew it wasn't, it didn't define me. Mm. I was never one of those athletes that hung on the fact that I was uh, an NBA player or that I I was an NBA champion. And it was never something that I felt was the full expression of who I I was on earth. Mm. Basketball for me was an ability to express myself physically, which was important for me. It was also entertainment. A huge part of my life and where I get fulfillment and joy and feel you know why I was put on earth was is to entertain, bring you know joy to others by what I do. And so as an NBA basketball player playing, you know, in front of an entire city or the, the world at times, I was entertaining. I was expressing myself physically. I was expressing myself emotionally. But at the end of the day, my journey has been one, a simple one of just finding families, finding teams, being a part of groups that pull together on common unity. So, you know, that's what basketball was for me. And, and that part of it I loved. So I missed immediately when I retired. I needed a new family. I needed to find another team. What was that other team for you? That's what the set gives me. As an actor, that's what being a part of, uh, you know, telling a story allows me to express myself physically and emotionally. It allows me to entertain. Yeah, that same joy from entertainment. The same joy of lifting uh, when I'm a part of something that makes people laugh, that lightens their load. When I take on a character and I take on a role, I'm allowing someone to see themselves in a character that might maybe answer some questions for them in their life. I'm being of service. But at the same time, when I'm on a set, you know, there's a director, there's a DP, there's another actor, there's a team. I'm a part of a family and we're doing something and we're pulling together. So that to me, uh, you know, I started doing that in 1994, three years into my NBA career. And so when I retired, I was... 10 years in to this, you know, second career. So you knew, you knew it was, oh, great. Now I've got even more availability and I can really pour yourself into that. Well, I knew in 94 after, you know, there was an opportunity to audition for this role in a movie with uh, Whoopi Goldberg called Eddie. And I spent two months in Charlotte, North Carolina on this movie playing a basketball player, uh, New York Nick, as a matter of fact. I spent two months and when I left, immediately I knew. Every day on set, I was asking questions to either, you know, the director or the DP. I wanted to know what everyone did. At that point, when I left, I said, this is what I want to do when I'm done playing. It's fulfilling me. It's giving me the same feeling I get when I play basketball. And so I walked up to Spike Lee the the next season, halftime of a Knicks game, and I just walked over, shoot around, you know, warming up for the second half. And I said, hey, when I'm done playing basketball, I found out what I want to do. I go, I know you have a production company. Can I come and, like, be an intern and just work? Wow. for you and watch you work. And he goes, 
give me a call when the season's over. And I called him and he said, hey, I have a, I have a role. I'm shooting a movie. I got a role. You have to audition for it. So I wasn't even thinking in front, in front of the camera. Again, I just wanted to go work for him at 40 Acres and a Mule. And I came and uh, I walk in and I'm signing in and out comes young Mila Djokovic and she was auditioning for the role and he got game. And behind me walked an 18-year-old Rosario Dawson. I didn't know who she was. She'd just done this movie, Kids. And I sat down and she asked to borrow my headphones and I gave her my headphones so she could do what she needed to do. And I walked in and, and I auditioned with Ray Allen and Travis Best and myself. And it was Spike Lee and... Uh, and the casting director, and we did the scene, and we hear applause, and uh, and we're looking, and Spike, Spike's not clapping, and neither is the casting director, but we're hearing his clapping, and we didn't know where it was coming from, and and then around the corner in this closet part of the room was Denzel Washington. He stuck his head out, and he was listening to the audition, and and he was uh, giving us, you know, congratulations for doing a good job, and I was like, oh man, that's like Denzel Washington, wow. And so, you know, I unbelievable. I know, yeah. And, you know, his approval was, you know, obviously nice to get when you're really learning how to act or you just don't know what you're doing, but you're just doing it. And it worked. You know, both Travis and Ray Allen and myself all got roles in the movie. But that very same day, I left and I went up to a second audition that someone told me that was an opportunity to do this new TV show. And Anthony Mason was supposed to have the role, but he had gotten in trouble. And couldn't do it. And I went to go see this gentleman named Tom Fontana. He was doing this new show for HBO called Oz. And I went and I sat down in his office and he said, hey, you know, I have this role. It's this basketball player that comes to jail. And he goes and he starts doing drugs. And he goes, have you ever done drugs? And I said, no. I go, but I got a lot of family members that sell drugs. And he goes, so I've seen them. I've seen them do drugs. And, uh, and he goes, well, read these sides and I act like I'm on drugs and he goes that's that's amazing he goes like you have the role if you want it and I'm thinking to myself oh okay I must have did something right <laughs> right so I show up and I shoot that summer the episodes for the first season of Oz it was this new HBO show it had all these today like great amazing actors that all have broken out to be Oscar winners and there's a big show I, basically I to this day say and people say this too kind of broke the mold of cable. This was in 1996. Okay. So I shot that that summer and I shot He Got Game and then I went to LA. Yep. And so when I get to LA, I'm there and I don't know anything about what's going to happen. I didn't know He Got Game was going to be a hit or Oz was going to be this hit on cable TV. I was just this guy that was acting, you know, and playing basketball. And then all of a sudden it just took off. I became the athlete that could act. But now I'm in Hollywood knowing that I don't know how to act. <laughs> so, like, so I got really, really paranoid about being like discovered, like being found out as someone that supposedly knows what he's doing, but I didn't know what I was doing. I was just being natural. And casting directors would say to me, don't go to acting class. You're a natural. You're a natural. Don't go to acting class. And I didn't know what that meant, but I really didn't know the craft. I had this huge fear that I was going to be found out. I was going to be found out. And so I just started reading everything I could read and I started going to class. And I, you know, do you think the classes helped or hurt? It hurt me. Yeah. I was warned by a great casting director, Ruben Cannon. Ruben Cannon said, You are a natural. Whatever you do, don't go to class. It's going to screw it up. Well, I didn't listen to him. Started to go to class and I started to get in my head and I started to act what I was doing naturally 
which was not act. Just being and being the character. I was just being and embodying a character and letting this, the wardrobe and the, the words work and the scenes where like, I, I all of a sudden thought I needed to act. Mm-hmm. So I became a bad actor. <laughs> and so in the midst of all of that, Thankfully, we were winning championships, so people kept, <laughs> people kept giving me opportunities. Yeah. Uh, but I would say from my time after my first, you know, time in Oz and some of the early movies I did where I was really good, I became really bad for a stretch. Were you critiqued for having a side career while being in the NBA? Yeah. How did that come to you and who was it coming from? Start Samuel Jackson was very much a huge impact. How so? Oh my gosh, I'll never forget it. I mean, I looked up, to, I still look up to Sam. Sam's a genius at what he does. More than anything, I wanted people that were actors to understand that this was something that I wanted to do in my life after basketball. The criticism from Sam wasn't directed, he didn't call me out specifically by name. What he said at the ESPYs one year was, I wish these athletes would stop trying to act, especially you basketball players. I was the basketball player that acted. Now, you know, so did Shaq. But it was something that really still drives me to this day, which is not wanting to be accepted by Sam. or whatever, But it's the thing that drives me is to respect the craft. I mean, I looked up to, I still look up to Sam. The other thing that Samuel L. Jackson comment perhaps did for you is put a little bit of a chip on your shoulder and set a bar of not good enough, similar to the way that your mom was with you, right? And that drive. Well, not enough is my cross, regardless of what I've accomplished. That is the rocket fuel in life, regardless of what I'm doing, no matter how much I reinvent myself or how many industries I tap into, it's not enough. I'm aware of it, but oh my God, is it a cross to carry? Because even when you're, you know, the moments of celebration are like five minutes and then it's not enough. Yep. Then you need to do more. Then right. you need to go back at it again. You know, you need to change the game again. You need to break the mold again. You need to evolve. Yeah. So evolving and not being enough are the thorns in my back. Yeah, the flip side of not being enough is being too much. Yep. Do you ever feel like you're being too much, uh, yep. taking on all these industries, pro athlete and now acting? I'd love to get into talking about esports and taking this on. Do you feel like, God, how can I be all these things? How can I be all these different identities? Well, being too much is the other, like you said, the other side where you apologize for being too much or you dim your light because it impacts others in a way where they're uncomfortable. And coming up on 50, the place I've recently gotten to, and I think I'm getting there, I shouldn't say, is not really diminishing that light. You know, being okay with being too much. I mean, and that's taking up more space. You know, I'm a kid that came from a little dot on the map. And what has driven me to head out into the world and try to accomplish these things is that I always felt that I needed to take up more space, that I had more to offer, that there was things I felt I could accomplish and to bring to the world or to you know, share with the world. And if I'm diminishing myself, if I'm apologizing for being too much, then I'm really actually doing a disservice to the gifts I've been given. And so there's something about this journey I'm on that I've, I mean, having gone from the NBA to the entertainment industry and to done the things I've done there to now the esports arena and to have been a part of a, the unlocking of an entire industry and representing and fighting for a generation that believes there's value here. And I do and that too. Like I literally didn't start that out in esports for that to be the result. But then I look at it and I see that that's exactly what would happen to me, <laughs> that I would be that person that rocket fuel for this industry. And what's the next one? I don't know uh, right now, but I know I will step into it and I will see it and it'll be there. And I just hope it's not politics. 
<laughs> don't I mean don't rule anything out oh, and I at mean this that. point. Oh my God. But I really appreciate personally you sharing about the feeling of not enough and I'm too much. The I'm too much has been one. Yeah. That's been the one for me that I've been working. Well, look, we're too tall. We're too big. We're too... Guys like us are going to have that, right? Right. To, I scared my daughter as a baby just with my voice. My voice, like, scared her, frightened her. I was like, and it was too much. Yeah. You know, and so you just hear it. I hear it repeatedly. I'm, I walk in the room. I take up too much attention, you know, which makes other people feel less than. So, therefore, you're too much. So, it's, you know. Yeah, I've been working a lot of the exact same things. It's really cool for me to hear you talking about this right now and seeing what you've done with it. And in many ways, this podcast is a vehicle for me to take up more space. There you go. Good for you. I have a successful branding firm. I was a pro athlete. It's like, oh, now this. And so this is part of that for me. And there's a broader mission to inspire others to make their next big jump in life. What comes after that? So I really appreciate you uh, going there with me on this. Yeah, man. So we started to drift into esports, and I'm happy because that's the last piece that I want to touch on with you. And so, what drew you to esports initially? Family. I recognized a family of uh, people that spoke to my heart. Well, I started with my son. My son is obviously my family. He's a gamer, as was I. I mean, the first, you asked me what sport did I play first? I always tell people now, and they find this hard to believe. I cut my competitive teeth on an Atari 2600. <laughs> I had to beat my friends. I had to beat that game. Like it was that thing I that turned that pilot light on. But my son was wanted to be a game designer and a developer, and he loved video games but was ashamed of it. And here he was coming out to college at the age of 18 here at Loyola Marymount, and he came to school to be a screenwriter. Why? Because he thought that's what I wanted him to do because I was in the entertainment industry. He'd read all these screenwriting books on my mantle and my, you know, bookshelves in my house. And I was like, no, I want you to do what you want to do. He's like, I want to be in the gaming industry, but it's like everyone in school says I should, there's no value in that. And I was like, what? No, 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 no. You do what you what you want to do with your life. Like, and he just did not know how to grab onto that and step out confidently. And I was like, look, I'm going to show you. Okay. You're like, this is how you live your passion. He wanted to get a job at Riot Games. He was working at a bike shop across the street from Riot Games. And I said, well, just go over there, walk in there and see if they have any internships, see if they're hiring. You know, and a month goes by and he hasn't walked in there yet. And he just keeps coming home talking about how he wished he could work at Riot. And I go, get in the car. And we just drove over there. Wow. And we walk in. And when I walk in there, I see this big picture on the wall and it's of the Staples Center. I'm thinking, oh, they're a basketball fans. <laughs> right. I go over there and I'm looking and I don't see any basketball. I was like, I asked the receptionist, like, what is this? What is this of? And she was like, oh, that's the world championships of League of Legends. I was like, what? Is it a filling Staples Center? And they're like, yeah. And I go, are the owners here? Like, oh, they're in Korea at the world championships. And I was like, hold on, this is global? And they're like, yeah. I was like, I was like, man, I go, can we get a tour? So I got a tour with my son and we walked around. I was like, see, like, this is, met with the young, the lady to, on an internship program. She's like, oh yeah, most of our interns come from Harvard and Princeton and Ivy League schools, and I went, oh, yeah, okay, Kyle, <laughs> like, what are you going to do about that, right? <laughs> and so, fortunately, the owners came back from, you know, a couple of weeks later, and they reached out to us, and they heard I'd stopped by, and they invited us to be a part of their community, and I saw my son feel at home, and then they invited us to go to Madison Square Garden, where we saw the North American Championships League of Legends, yeah. and I walked into Staples Center, and it was filled, and I could not believe my eyes. I got the feeling. I got the goosebumps. It was competition. And I saw Adam Silver there, and I saw 
John Skipper from ESPN, and I started to put the pieces together. And I could see it was big business. I could see it was the next wave of professional sports. Shortly after that, I started to kind of dig into it deeper and uh, made the jump. I made the jump. And I made the jump really, A, because I thought it would bring me and my son closer, his family. I thought it would give me a chance to show him how to be, how to live his passion. It would give him a career in gaming. And I made that jump and I did it without knowing. And I remember ESPN did the article, Darren Ravel did an article and all of a sudden my phone just started ringing off the hook. Hmm. Owners of professional sporting teams asking me what this was. Did I think it was real? What, like, well, how was this going to make? And I became this kind of this beacon that would educate others about why I did this. Mm-hmm. And then I got a reception from the esports community of thank you. Thank you for validating this as something that isn't a waste of time. And then I started having kids hitting me on social media saying, thank you. Now I tell my parents that you own an esports, you own a professional esports franchise. And they're asking me, what is that? So they started pointing to their parents going, see, Rick Fox owns an esports team. It's real. So you validated it. I validated this thing. And I I had no idea that that's what was going to be the response to this. I knew on the periphery, it was big. I had never taken the time prior to preparing for our sit down today to really understand just how big it was. And some of the stats completely blew me away. So, you know, you mentioned how it's filling arenas, right? Staples Center, Madison Square Garden. They're now building arenas dedicated to esports in Vegas and Tokyo. We sold out the uh, Olympic Stadium in China. In Beijing, the, the bird's nest, right? 100,000 people. It's unbelievable. Viewership worldwide, 453 million are consuming gaming content. Some of these numbers are so big, they're almost hard for me to conceptualize. But I understand that's bigger than the viewership of Netflix, HBO, ESPN, and Hulu combined. Yeah. This is going to be a $2 billion industry quick, growing 20% a year. It is growing at a warp speed. I got in four years ago in 2015 in December. My partners and I, we spent a million dollars to get in for a slot. We bought a franchise slot. At that time, like Premier Soccer, it was not guaranteed. You could get relegated. Hmm. So we obviously spent another few million dollars to actually execute and operate the company and the team. But in the short span of 2015 in December, you're talking about three years. I made statements earlier on the first year that we would surpass the likes of the NHL and viewership really quickly here. And everyone was like, no, you're crazy. You're being arrogant. And sure enough, I appeared to be you know, Stradamus in that regard. And I yeah, remember, these are my former traditional sport right. you know, peers. Like, I didn't do this to say, you know, traditional sports is going to die. I was just saying that esports deserves a seat at the table. I think that seat was going to turn into they deserve their own table. You know, it's like, <laughs> I, I hope that from an investment standpoint, but I didn't really think that, it, you know, we would be starting to, you know, pull focus. And that's kind of what technology has done that, right? Having your laptop, your device be the thing that you consume all your content through has really unlocked the gaming side of things. Because if you go to a, a subway, you go to a, anywhere, sit down at a coffee shop, kids aren't the only ones playing games on their phones. They're not the only ones gaming. Everyone's gaming. Well, with regards to the viewership, I saw amazing stat that this last world championship had just over 100 million viewers. The last Super Bowl had 98 million viewers. Yeah. So it's already getting more viewership globally than the Super Bowl. And the other thing that struck me was that 40% of gaming viewers 
do not play games themselves, showing that there really is a spectator aspect to it. That's where you start to really see that this it's entertainment. Mm-hmm. I will sit now and I will watch a stream or I'll watch someone play a game that I love, even if I'm not playing. And in-game is, is you'll see that Nowadays, if you're a Battle Royale fan, you play Fortnite or you play H1, you know, Z1 Battle Royale, so any of these Apex, any of these games, when you fail and you lose, there's a spectator mode. You can f- jump on board and watch the next person finish the game out. Right. And I find myself doing that all the time. You know, the person to beat you, you want to see if, how far they get. And those are logged minutes. Those are logged hours. People are sitting there playing, but also then watching. Now, you're in an interesting position as almost you've become the de facto ambassador for esports in a lot of ways. You're an influencer, a team owner, an advocate for its relevancy and its place with the seat at the table. One of the big criticism you mentioned traditional sports is this isn't a sport and these folks are not athletes. These are not pro athletes. Having been a traditional pro athlete yourself, had the sweat, had the blood, how do you view this debate? I no longer am on this roller coaster of fighting the debate of whether these are athletes or these guys or women and girls are athletes or not. All of this is entertainment. All of it is competition. Is somebody using their body to do the thing they're doing? Yes. Now, if we're counting beads of sweat, I can go and I can find you athletes that's so good at what they do, they don't sweat. It's effortless to them, right? Is it IQ? Because I've found esport athletes that are done better on the Wonderlick test than top. Quarterbacks. Quarterbacks that have been drafted is a strategy because they're strategizing. They're processing stuff at a rate that I would argue is processing faster and calculating things faster in-game than I did on the basketball court. Is it stamina? These guys will play best of five and they'll be they'll sit down for seven hours. I can find you athletes that can't sit for five minutes and focus. Right. They're doing it for seven hours. You sit in a NASCAR and you do a, the Daytona 505 and you're going to circle, right? right? And you're shifting gears and you're dealing with the heat and the, the stress. Okay, well, they're having to stay focused for that long too, right? Yeah. Go to people who used to attack golf. Oh, that's not a sport. Okay, well, the hand-eye coordination, the coordination of moving the body into, in a way into... that's precise to create the impact. Well, not everyone can do that. I go try and do it. I can't do it. I was a professional athlete, but I can't do what Tiger Woods does. I sat down. I try to do what they do. I can't do it. And trust me, I sat down for months and hours on end to try and, and go, oh, well, it's just a video game. I should be able to like just put extra hours in and be as good yeah. as them. No. And the elite can do things that others can't. And if they're competing and it's a game and it's a sport and someone's winning and losing, to me, that's sport. Mm-hmm. We used to have this argument all the time. Are baseball players more athletic than basketball <laughs> players? Are basketball players more athletic than football players? Like, it's like on the gauntlet of the gladiator scale, right? right. Who's stacking up as the most physically, you know, and what is that about? Bragging rights, right? Yeah. So at that point, I just don't care about that. Like, like in 10, 15 years from now, if a traditional sport that we today grew up playing is no longer even played and esports is garnering all the attention and those are defined as our athletes of this era because the next generation says those are athletes, it won't matter what we think. It won't matter what society thinks. Society will define who they worship and who they look up to and who they really actually believe is doing more with their body. So to me, an esport athlete is using their whole body just different parts of their body in different ways. Well, just as you were saying, the stack up about who's the most athletic actually had to do with something totally different. I've got a pet theory about why this debate exists, because you're right. At the lower end of that gladiator spectrum, when you get into things like 
golf or NASCAR or pool or curling or things like that, right? Yes. It becomes this fuzzy gray sort of thing about what's gladiator, what's not, what sport, what's not. So my pet theory on this, I'd love to get your reaction. For the traditional media, for the traditional sports person, it's them having an allergic reaction to the way in which the world is changing. Yes. It's things are going more digital. People are feeling us losing the physical world and not liking that. And I think that this esports movement has become a symbol for the digitization of our world and of our lives and of society. And I think it's become a symbol and people are reacting to that cultural movement more than does it count or not pro athlete or not. Right. And it's holding on to the past. And I think you've voiced it perfectly in that regard. I would agree with you. We evolve. And you can either hold on to what you know that is comfortable for you and have it pass you by, or you can evolve and grow and change. It's happening all around you. And you can deny it, or you can embrace it and understand it and educate yourself and kind of shift with the times and make those people your friends. What I've been saying to traditional sports is, Esports community can be your friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so yeah. some people have been wise enough in traditional sports to invest yep. in these entities and they're reaping the benefits of that because they're wise enough to evolve. We're sitting today at the headquarters. It was cool for me to see your team practicing. Oh, where they're um, back there. Yeah. They're back there okay. getting after it. I'd never seen that before. You know, when you bought the team, you guys struggled. It almost reminded me a little struggling bit. Now. <laughs> struggling now. Yeah. But it has improved from where you first took over and rebranded the team and have been on this, you know, three, four year journey now. How has your past as an athlete, as an actor, how has it helped you in your role now as team owner? And what sort of a role do you hope to play to help your organization thrive and succeed? What I would tell you is that Rick Fox, the owner, professional sport owner, was horrible in the first year. There's stories around here, I'm sure, from some of the kids that were experiencing me at the beginning where, you know, my intensity and and the things, <laughs> the way I handled losing and the amount of pressure I put on us as an organization to, you know, basically live up to the level of the Lakers and the Celtics, which is a <laughs> lot to ask of, you know, a young group of men who are, you know, in their 20s just figuring out you know, how to date and how to, you know, show up and be professional at work. You know, I expected them to conduct themselves like 30-year-old men who had been around for 20 years in professional sports. So, you know, I had an intensity that I kind of live with in my own life. You know, I don't know how to temper sometimes. And, you know, there's this drive to, you know, to really just suit up, show up, and be the best version of yourself every day. My son, unfortunately, will tell you he's lived with that as me as a dad, and that's a lot. It's a lot to have, you know, constantly as the volume knob in, you know, in the room or in your life. And so I learned that I needed to step back, be a owner in support, but do it in a compassionate way, be more of the light that uplifts instead of the voice that criticizes. A criticizing voice comment from me is crushing because of who I am and the status I have and, and how much, you know, everyone looks up to me. So I've allowed others to kind of take positions of leadership. And that's tough because sitting in the passenger seat or getting in the backseat of the car and letting others drive has not always been the easiest thing for me to do. But I think we've grown because I've learned how to do that. It took time, but I got there. What I hope to be is, you know, I took a couple of years to really have more of an impact in the community as a whole in esports. I think in doing that, maybe the compass of our organization, you know, maybe 
swayed a little bit in terms of who we are and what we are going to be. But I'm back in now in a more of a day-to-day capacity, and yep. it's stressful. Oh, man, I gain weight. I find myself not sleeping as well. Running a business and an organization is not as easy as some would think. I would encourage athletes to do their internships that they have opportunities to do, to really do those things because business is tough and it's a lot of work. It's just, it's 24-7 basketball. You work, you go play the game, you go home. In business, you take your business with you, you know, every moment of the day. Yes, very, very true. Last question about esports. What do you wish people knew about esports that perhaps they don't? Or what do you wish people would ask you about esports? That it's not the bubble of the internet in the 2000s or whatever, early 2000s. It has had a meteoric rise, but the stability has been put in place because of the intelligence that's in the room now from really successful traditional sports partners to venture capitalists that understand how to make a sustainable business model from this space. I rode the rocky early years of having to make this something of value. It wasn't so much smoke and mirrors. It was all of a sudden you're moving at warp speed and it's like, hold on, you know? And so as you're educating and you're watching the business, you know, move at a lightning speed and then you're trying to set your own foundation, all that stuff is a lot to do. And so to me, I would like people to know that it's a marathon, not a sprint, even though it appears right now that everyone's sprinting to get in. (laughs) Right. Once you get in, there's still, I think, you know, multiples that'll happen for early adopters, but it'll start to level out in the coming year or two here. And and then it's time for everyone to, you know, lock in and really work together. Mm -hmm. Right now we're in the goal rush, right? Where everyone's fighting to stake their claim. claim (laughs) And and you want to be selling pick forks and... Yeah. Stakes and maps and not just, you know, racing out to be the first one to find the goal. Well, last question for you overall. And thanks so much for sharing your story. I found it endlessly fascinating. And, um, you know, to hear you, your multiple reinventions, first into NBA champion and then success with acting. And now what seems to be a great trajectory uh, for you and your team in esports. And I want to hear about your brand company. That's what you're doing. So I play in college. I played for a pro team in Germany. I now founded a branding firm that I've run for 10 years and one of the better regarded branding firms in Chicago. So I started out of my bedroom. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never worked for a consultancy or an agency before, but you talked about passion. I had a passion for branding and design. After I played pro basketball, I moved to India and tried to start the Facebook of India. So I lived in India for a year, was knocking door to door, hey, sign up for my website type of a thing. We got some traction, 5,000 users. Google came in and left us in the dust. So the money I'd made playing pro basketball overseas was all evaporated. I put it into the startup. So I was broke and needed a job. Moved to Chicago, got a job, got back on my feet. And this side hustle has now been my main hustle. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's what I'm up to. We do a lot in um, hospitality, okay. real estate, anything that has a guest experience. That's the next phase of my, the next step in my career. I'm from the Bahamas, as you know, yeah. is to take my own personal journey and my experiences having marketed the country of the Bahamas as tourism ambassador yeah. and to take, you know, Jimmy Buffett is right. Of course. Is to take my own personal brand as a Bahamian, having accomplished these different things as an entertainer, as an mm-hmm. athlete, as a, an owner in esports, And take the next phase in my career as an individual that can speak to 
lifestyle as you retire, as you head into your vacation days. Yeah. And I want to go after Tommy Bahama. Good. I want to be Rick Bahama because I'm actually from the Bahamas. <laughs> Tommy Bahama's from, <laughs> they're from Seattle. <laughs> so, so I want to start to create, because we're a tourism industry in the Bahamas that has 6 million tourists that come every year. Yeah. And I want to give people that come to my country an experience tailored by me. So when yeah. you think of Jimmy Buffett as kind of tackled the mm-hmm. Florida market and all that stuff. Yep. I, want to, I want to give a visitor an authentic experience. Yeah, it's a beautiful vision. I love the things of destinations or environments right now. We're doing a brand refresh for Navy Pier, which sees almost 10 million visitors a year oh, wow. uh, in yeah, Chicago. And so, yeah, anything like that is super excited. So we should That's talk cool. more, yeah. like to hear more should, about yeah, your vision. Yeah, we should brainstorm over that. Yeah, it'd be fun. I'm sure you'd have some experience and be able to work together, appointment in the right direction. What advice would you give to the teenager, Rick Fox, you know, just about to step on a plane to head to America for the first time? What advice would you give to that version of Rick? Dream bigger. Wow. After all this, because I'm looking at what you've done and I'm like, damn, that's big. Dream bigger. Take the cap off. Take the top off. I even to this day think that I, if I, because everything that I've said I wanted to do, I end up doing. And then I get there and I always go, more. And that's the not enough. But just, you know, I wish I'd set my goal to chase Bill Russell. You know, Bill Russell had nine championships, you know. I think I would have been a part of nine teams that have won nine championships had I known that, you know, or thought that. I told my high school coach the first time I sat down with him when I got to Indiana, I said, I want to play basketball for you. I want to go to the University of North Carolina and I want to play in the pros. That's very broad, right? Hmm. And you see that article I told you where I said I want to play 12 years, win three championships. Kind of broad at the time I right. made that statement, but I did that right. And the next thing I would add to that is not only taking the top off and dreaming big, is be very detailed and specific about what you say you want. Because you will start to move towards it. There'll be obstacles. You'll have the highs and the lows, and it'll swing all over the place. But if you're heading towards, you're heading in a direction of a destination, and you're not caught up in the specifics of how it's going to look to get there, you'll get there. It will be highs and lows along the way. But if you start to be very detailed and specific about how you're going to get there or how you want to get there, you'll get there quicker. Amazing. You'll get there quicker. Man, you gave me goosebumps. Yeah, thank you for that. Really, truly. I appreciate you. I'm happy to know you now. This has really been fantastic. I'm so excited to see what you do next. Rick, such a pleasure, man. Thanks so much. Enjoyed it. Definitely. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. The Big Jump is an independent podcast brought to you ad-free, created to spread the simple message that life is what you make it. If you like this episode, you can probably think of just one friend who would like it too. So text it to them and it'll mean the world to me. I'd love to have you back here. So before you go, subscribe for future episodes of The Big Jump. And until next time, as they say, the rest is up to you.